Welcome to New Discourses podcast. This is James Lindsay. I want to talk to you today about something that is really kind of concerning me. I've not really known how to speak about it. Um, just kind of jump right in because it's a bit long. Um, I want to talk to you today about the age of narratives and the postmodern democratic political regime, which I think we all live in now. So how I got here a few days ago, I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, I don't know how to tell what's true anymore. Now, this really hit me hard because I feel the same way pretty much all the time now, and I have for a couple of years. Um, he and I aren't the only ones who feel this way, apparently. I have other friends talking about the same struggle. People reach out to me about it all the time, in fact. This isn't really new. It's been going on for at least 10 years. Um, people email me all the time and have done to ask me how I can tell what's true, especially they want to know how I pick which media to trust. And for a long time, the answer I gave is a kind of vague, I don't know. I kind of just know how to do it. And you kind of have to just get a feel for this, but always would include you should lean on well-established sources over pretty much anything else never been a huge fan of alt media. Well, since Trump's presidential campaign really took off in 2015, and maybe sooner than that, as many of my conservative friends would have it, this heuristic doesn't really work. Even our most trusted sources publish a lot of bullshit now. And ever since Trump took office, pretty much every big mainstream outlet that criticizes him does it so blindly that they've lost our trust. And of course, not all media, right? But it, the thing is, is that it's enough media, and it's media on literally every channel, so that credibility in each channel and on the whole has been sacrificed on the altar of their agendas. Entire sectors of academia have done the same thing, which pollutes the credibility of pretty much all of it. And it's not clear what can fix this. Not even a pandemic, which you would hope people could stop and focus on, is fixing it. In fact, it's probably making it worse. Of course, maybe it's always been this way, but there really does seem to be something different about right now. And that's what I want to talk about. See, I don't think it's actually true that we're doing a worse job at figuring out what is true than we did in the past. In fact, I think we're doing better than ever, at least for the time being. We used to be wrong about a lot more than we are now, I think. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ability to feel like we can know what's true and not true. And so we, we used to have these kind of big sweeping features in our society and institutions that helped us believe we could tell what was true. Maybe it was the three-channel news where they all said kind of the same thing. Maybe it was religion. Something was there that let us feel like we could tell what is and isn't true, even if everything we believed was false. And so here we are. I don't know how to tell what's true anymore has really become an anthem for our age. So he says this, and it strikes me, and like a fool, the next thing I do is go on Twitter, which is nothing short of a functional real-time deconstruction machine that never stops. And I get on there, and I start talking about what everybody can't stop talking about right now, the COVID-19 pandemic. 
And isn't this just the perfect example of what's going on? What do we see? We see, well, which model is correct? What if our estimates are correct and yours are wrong? What if we nuke the economy for nothing? What if we should shut down for longer? Models keep changing. What are we, what are we supposed to believe? And then you turn and it's something else, right? It's a, well, don't you know that the virus has a gendered impact that harms women most? And that some people of color won't wear homemade masks in the pandemic because they're afraid it'll cause police to shoot them. Or that paying attention to sick uh, cisgender people or sick people with COVID-19 distracts from trans issues that somehow are life and death now, comparatively. Uh, These kinds of racial issues are just one of the many racial impacts of COVID-19 that prove our society is racist, so we should probably abolish prisons. Meanwhile, we have the president touting an unproven drug, and he's just giving people hope. And there have been some positive trials, and uh, the, some of the trials aren't so good. And but but there was a guy on that did his own tests, the doctor that did his own tests, and and it doesn't show up in a medical journal. And had to be told to the world on a pundit's late night TV show on one of the most blatantly politicized cable news channels that has ever existed. But why why isn't that true? I mean, this is really what it's like. And to say anything is to invite this to get dumped upon you. One perspective, another perspective, another perspective. How do you know what's true? Well, the answer functionally is if you believe it, <laughs> isn't it? So... The only channel that's pushing out real news among all the fake news is the one you believe. All the rest are just politicized news channels, fake news. All the news now is, in fact, fake news except the news we want to believe. The news that fits the narrative that suits your politics, your view of the world, that's true. The news that matches your teams or your tribes or your whatever we have to call it, locally true narrative, That's the one that's true, and all the rest are fake. All the rest are political jobs just trying to exert control over everyone to push their agenda. And it's true for all of them, all the channels. And so my friend ends up texting me the one thing I can't stop thinking lately. I don't know how to tell what's true anymore. Bracket this for a minute. I want to give it some context. So some of you will have seen, a couple of weeks ago, I sat down to watch a street epistemology video on YouTube made by my friend, a guy named Anthony Magnabosco, who talked to a young indigenous scholar, Vanessa. And she's up to her eyeballs in critical social justice theory. The video is um, really quite striking if you haven't seen it. Vanessa's a college student, I think. She calls herself a scholar, but let's just be clear. So another of my friends, Reed Nicewonder, runs another street epistemology channel called Cordial Curiosity. He invited me to watch that Magna Bosco Vanessa video with him and comment on what I see as I watch her talk through her critical social justice beliefs. So we did a thing for a couple hours. It's pretty interesting. Near the end of the second part out of three parts of Anthony's video series with Vanessa, she gets to a really key part about the critical social justice belief structure. And she might as well quote the very famous postmodern philosopher Michel Foucault at one point near the end when Anthony asks her a very straight question about the truth. And she replies something to the effect of, and I'm not quoting her here, well, what's considered true depends upon who has the authority to determine the truth. 
this shocking claim, and I must say it's a fundamentally postmodern claim. Like it's not just fundamentally postmodern, but probably the best functional definition of what postmodernism really means in practice. This shocking postmodern claim leads Vanessa almost in her next breath to argue that she doesn't really like truth or believe in truth. Uh, truth is kind of irrelevant, or it's just something that exists inside of narrative. She even says that people with different narratives have different realities, presumably ones in which different truths present themselves. That's definitely the gist of the argument that she makes. In taking it there, Vanessa goes a bit far. But this idea isn't just rooted in Foucault. It is postmodern, and the American postmodern philosopher Richard Rorty argued similarly, writing that the world might be out there, but the truth isn't really out there. His implication is that truth is something embedded in culture, or ultimately that's constructed by cultural narratives about which statements can be deemed true by the powers that get to authenticate statements as true. Another French philosopher, Jean-Francois Lyotard, was a big favor of this idea of replacing big narratives with locally true mini-narratives. It's just like Vanessa, Fox News, and everyone else who sees knowledge claims in epistemology through a lens of politics. So think about that for a minute. It's all narrative. Truth is just a matter of the narrative and which narratives we believe are decided upon by applications of social and political power. That's postmodernism. And every channel's news is fake news except the one that matches your politics. We don't have universally recognizable authorities anymore. Even our leading epidemiologists are being politicized right now. Instead, we have our preferred authorities. And just like little postmodern Vanessa said, what we take as truth depends on who we recognize as having the authority to determine what gets called the truth. Once again, I really have to stress, this is the fundamentally postmodern view. It is like the quintessential observation of postmodern philosophy if I had to boil it down to just one thing. Okay, now bracket this too. I'm getting some context here. So, kind of bigger picture for myself, for a while now, I've been thinking about eras and epochs of history. I got into this because of postmodernism, which clearly followed modernism. I wanted to put this into context. In some ways, postmodernism, like everything that's post, rejects the premises of whatever it's post to. So here it's modernism. That would be premises like objectivity and logical positivism. Postmodernism wholly rejects. But it also amplifies other premises in modernism, like their growing skepticism and pessimism. Postmodernism turned those radical and cynical. Uh, it took them to an extreme. Anyway, because of all of this, I've been pretty interested in the, the, the broad concept of modernity. Not so much modernism for a little while. Uh, Helen Pluckrose and I even wrote a manifesto in the defense of modernity, or rather we wrote one against its postmodern and pre-modern enemies in the middle of 2017. In that manifesto, we defined modernity quite broadly as the big-picture epoch of human history that began with the Enlightenment 500 years ago and got us more or less where we are today. 
And speaking of modernity, by the way, it didn't just come into being without some kicking and screaming. I don't want to paint a picture like it was just this easy transition. In fact, I'm guessing it was rather a lot like things are now in a much different context. The printing press was the big kind of technological innovation behind what was going on at the time, kind of like the internet now. And it was certainly a critical invention at the time, arguably it changed everything, even religion, uh, more than maybe any other invention up to that time. Uh, the printing press, for instance, enabled the Protestant Reformation, uh, whatever you want to say about Martin Luther and his courage or other traits he might have possessed, the ability to print Bibles in vernacular languages was really core to what was going on there. And before then, times were fairly dark, as we call them, although historians like to point out that they, they weren't that dark. Uh, but in a sense, they were also relatively stable, which is a funny thing to say, compared to what was coming once the Enlightenment really started shaking things up. And uh, that's because all of a sudden, at least in Europe, the thing that let people believe they could tell what was true, Catholic Christianity for the most part, got kneecapped by a series of philosophers who more or less insisted that the authority of prophets isn't good enough to get us to truth. And yes, I know I'm oversimplifying. This is a big picture point with lots of messiness around it that doesn't go away just because there's messiness. Um, the Catholic Church, of course, responded rather predictably, torturing people and setting them on fire, or at least arresting them, as happened in the case of one of the greatest icons of scientific history, Galileo. And what was happening was that pre-modernity was ending, and its capacity to enable a means by which people could all believe that they could tell what's true, more or less by listening to priests, was coming to a close. Modernity was coming into the world, kicking and screaming through some really brutal religious wars that pitted a controlled narrative scene against one that isn't. Well, the magic of the Enlightenment wasn't just unleashing the printing press. It was also establishing that narrative itself. Thus, all those religious struggles missed the point. It's that there's an objective reality out there, and if we're willing to do the work and swallow an awful lot of our pride, and in some cases privilege, we can actually know something about it. Over the course of a couple of centuries or three, narratives slowly became quaint and kind of backwards, or so we thought, and modernity was here. And by the way, those of us who feel politically homeless and lost by what's going on right now, thinking everything in the world kind of went mad in a bad way and really fast, um, although we're not modernists as the philosophers and historians would have it, I think we're all kind of modernityists, to make up a fake word using Helen's and my non-standard use of the term modernity. That is, we all believe that enlightenment-based modernity stuff, what we call uh, advanced democracies, and, and what makes them work. We believe in that, liberalism, science, reason, that kind of stuff. So modernity as such can be broken up into a bunch of eras, and this is what got me thinking about these different time periods. Uh, you could say that it would be fair to call the first of these the Enlightenment era, and that gave way to this rationalist era, uh, which had its own issues. Eventually this developed into what's called the modernist era, which despite its name would have been the era defining thought roughly from around the American Civil War up through maybe World War II. So that is, the modernist era would have been when everything 
started getting industrial and mechanical, which brought with it certain kinds of pessimism of how bad everything is, alongside a lot of optimism about how we can use science and technology to fix it all. So Marx, for example, was a modernist thinker. And this is what replaced the quaint narratives of pre-modernity, kind of, at least partially and on the societal scale. See, these things were their own kind of narrative, though, um, which have been described as stories about stories, a kind of grand mythology in which all of our stories have to be embedded to be considered not mythology, kind of ironically. So some of these would be like liberalism itself, capitalism, communism, great societies, manifest destiny, the French civilizing mission. Even religion, by which is really meant Christianity, which has been uh, contorted more recently into kind of an ahistorically and, and inaccurate, the very popular fiction called Western Values of Judeo-Christian Heritage. Um, these were the new narrative. Um, these are the meta-stories because they're stories about stories. They're, they're meta-narratives, as a matter of fact, and they are the things that built modernity. Um, this is a somewhat worthy observation, in fact, that's generated a lot of confusion and conflation since. Um, you may have noticed, I hope, that I didn't mention science on the list of meta-narratives. That was intentional. Science is actually really good at helping us really know how to tell what's true, not just to believe that we can tell what's true, because it happens to fit the mythological framework of some time and place. Anyway, people noticed that these are narratives themselves, and they conflated away, tying features of liberalism, capitalism, and science in with the rest of these kinds of meta-narratives in a way that doesn't really work but convinces a lot of people, mostly the kind who aren't scientists and who don't like capitalism all that much. And so it has come to pass that the latest era in modernity would be the post-modernist era. And as you can probably guess, that's not good for modernity. So the postmodern era, or postmodernist era, is frankly probably going to be the last era of modernity, unless we can save modernity. And this particular podcast is meant to try to tell you something much more negative than my usual message is, which is that the ship has already left the port. Um, modernity is slipping away. And this is because while most people talk about postmodernism being a reaction to and kind of rejection of modernism, it's more accurately a rejection of modernity. Postmodernism, however, it relates to modernism via its postification, meaning some philosophical alchemy where you add the prefix of post. Um, whatever's going on, postmodernism hates modernity, and it's fundamentally incompatible with it. So it's probably not good that it's sort of taking over. Um, so how does it hate modernity? Well, modernity is built upon a few pillars, which I've kind of been talking about for the last few minutes. Science, reason, rule of law, liberalism, capitalism. These are the kinds of things that modernity is built on, and postmodernism hates all of them. The power of science, for example, ultimately comes from the fact that it says that humans are not the ultimate standard for knowledge. Reality is, whether we like it or not. 
It's therefore, in a very meaningful sense, a bunch of methods that humans have devised for bouncing our ideas off of reality and keeping the good ones, the ones reality didn't make a fool of. Postmodernism isn't having that. Reality, it tells us, might be out there, but we can't know it, because our human contrivances are all hopelessly blocked from accessing objective reality by our own subjective biases. Science and its methods, even its axiomatic claim upon universality, that it doesn't matter who performs the experiment, the result should always be the same. These are seen as mere cultural artifacts. So they're one way of knowing among many, and it can't really compare one to another. And science is one that has always enabled a steady supply of misuse and abuse that have caused harm, suffering, and oppression while marginalizing other ways of knowing that might have done better. As if. So postmodernism isn't a big fan of science. It also doesn't like reason. Reason is similarly considered by postmodernism to be a contrivance of power, a myth that European men, later straight white western men, told themselves about their own ability to think and justify their political dominance of the world. Reason is also a myth, a contrivance, a lie, as postmodernism sees it. It's something that cannot tell you anything about the world. It can only tell you about the people who think their reason is better than someone else's. Uh, The rule of law, similarly, is rejected by postmodernism, again, because laws are human contrivances and thus ultimately arbitrary and thus only have meaning as a direct application of political power. And many things within the law are complex and ambiguous, very difficult, Um, not the kind of thing you'd see as being cut and dry in the sciences. So the law has to rely upon standards like, say, the reasonable person standard that asks us to consider what a reasonable person would think in some situation. Postmodernism rejects that entirely. It rejects the entire idea that any of us can be reasonable people, even in principle, because we are all clouded by our biases. So this standard is just right out the window. Thus, when somebody of a minority race is caught shoplifting, they shouldn't be held to account or held liable. The law, or even if I had to go there, a reasonable person might conclude that the act was stealing, but that person concluding it is too embedded in power dynamics. The dominance he has internalized or the oppression he can't understand to understand the underlying systemic forces that really led the person to take something without paying for it. And there's no standard or reasonable person left in post-modernity who could agree that what really happened was theft. This, by the way, reminds me of a trick that my friend Anthony Magnabosco likes to use when people start talking about their truth versus your truth or versus the truth. You know, they say something like, it's true for me. So Anthony will do something like ask to have their water bottle and then claim that it's his truth, that it's his water bottle now. In the narrative where Anthony says that it's true that the water bottle is his, when there's no reasonable person who could possibly adjudicate what had happened, you can immediately see the problem. It turns out the people he takes the water bottle from, who were just talking about things being true for them, can also see the problem. It's really excellent. Um, So postmodernism is hostile to a reasonable person standard, which makes a rule of law difficult. 
Um, postmodernism is also openly hostile to liberalism itself. Um, it sees liberalism not as the gateway to a functional democratic political order, but as its chief impediment. Liberalism is, to postmodernism, that which fools the oppressed into believing they have it better than they do so that they won't turn radical and try to overturn the system. Postmodernism doesn't like the idea of liberalism at all because it wants to favor what might be called radical egalitarianism instead, where it orders society according to a hierarchy of endless reparations for historical injustices rather than according to principles of equality, liberty, and judgment upon the content of one's character. And of course, postmodernism is openly hostile to capitalism, at least in the way the philosophy was developed, because it was made up by a bunch of post Marxists, which is, yeah, another post. So postmodernism is actually as a philosophy hostile to all of modernity and the pillars that hold it up, and thus it's not wrong to characterize it as a step out of the light back into darkness, if we want to get metaphorical. It's exactly the kind of anti-enlightenment thinking that could spark a new dark age if it has the power or gets it. Or, more accurately, if it keeps succeeding in eroding the powers that are keeping the lights on. So I know we've got a lot, but you have to bracket this too. We're almost done with the bracketing. So the thing we need to do now then is distinguish between postmodernism and postmodernity. I've talked about modernity so far, but now postmodernity. And I mean that in the same way that Helen and I meant modernity in our little manifesto, where we capitalized it and basically use it to mean the machinery and outcomes of human progress toward advanced democracies over the last 500 years. I have to say that because postmodernity means something else too, which is what the original postmodernists, Michel Foucault, Jean-François Lyotard, Jean Baudrillard, uh, Jacques Derrida, and so on, thought they were merely describing. The postmodern condition is what Lyotard called it in his most famous book, and what was it in summary? A skepticism of meta-narratives meaning any narrative we could all hope to get behind. And it should be, uh, these should be rejected in favor of local narratives where it's true for you and something else is true for me. So what was their problem? Well, they were, think about it. They were looking around at a world full of pop culture, mass-produced stuff, wanting people who wanted to watch football instead of engaging in art. Um, lots of vestiges of modern capitalist societies that people happen to like, but that aren't exactly, you know, high culture. They were also looking at the abuses of science as those were being put into policy and carrying the world wars and empire as historical back backdrops for these uh, abuses of science. They were also dealing with the cynicism that their preferred answer to all of those apparent problems would have. That was Marxism. So the Marxism was failing, it was on the rocks, and what does that leave you with except cynical? See, a lot of people get this all wrong and think that the postmodernists were Marxists. No, they were post-Marxists. They weren't even neo-Marxists like Adorno, Horkheimer, Herbert Marcuse. Post-Marxists. Derrida even wrote a book called Spectres of Marxism in which he explained the need to transcend Marxism. And in his own words, he said, what is absolutely clear is that I am not a Marxist. So what post means here is that they were big but disillusioned fans. They were big fans of communist movements, not at least Mao's, which they were 
pretty well behind, but they were utterly disillusioned with Marxism. They didn't think it could work. So they were generally mad at society, generally disliked all the things about modernism and modernity that you might expect out of good, angry radicals on the left, but also utterly broken on the left's favorite solution, which was Marxism. So they just went kind of totally nihilistic and tore into the very fabric of what a society means, what meaning itself is, and why it necessarily sucks, unless it's almost some pre-civilizational realm of pure experience, which they wrote about repeatedly as being what they saw as some kind of an ideal. Hence the focus on lived experience, by the way. So postmodernity, as they meant it, would mean kind of how the advanced developed world was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s if you pretty much hated everything about it. The postmodern condition described by Leotard was really a kind of introspective confession amidst a bunch of outright linguistic nonsense that mostly belched out his cynicism and despair. And that's not what I want to talk about when I talk about postmodernity, um, which is the thing I'm afraid we have walked into as we slowly turn our backs on modernity entirely. So what is postmodernity? It's what my friend said. I don't even know how to tell what's true anymore. Why? Because it's all narrative. The truth doesn't exist in postmodernity except as a kind of privileged status within some narrative or another. So in postmodernity, you get your truth, I get my truth. The postmodernists get their post-truth. The president can have his alternative facts, and before long, nobody even knows how to tell what's true anymore. Postmodernity is, or at least begins with, what I've been calling the age of narratives for a little while now. Or, I guess, if we want to stick with convention, we could call this period narrativism, or the narrativistic age, and place it in a row in its proper place with the other big trends, rationalism, modernism, postmodernism, narrativism. Narrativism is now. Postmodernity is the name for that now. So, now you have enough things in your, in your brackets, and I can tell you, Probably much the scariest thing that I think I've thought ever, and it's something I just can't shake because it has that really uncomfortable status of something I really don't want to have be true, but increasingly suspect is true. Um, I guess you have to bracket this too, because we have to go back to 2017 for me to explain this properly, but the long and short of it is that we really are in post-modernity now, like post-modernity has institutionalized. And so when I said the ship has left the port a few minutes ago, that's what I mean. So my friend saying to me, I don't know how to tell what's true anymore, ended up striking a chord that made me think, why, I don't know, about an essay I wrote a long time ago when Donald Trump was first elected right after his inauguration in January 2017. I titled it Donald Trump and the Death of an American Political Regime. In that essay, I discussed this idea called democratic political regimes. I know that's a head-scratcher for a lot of us. Democracy that works is supposed to be the answer to the problem we usually refer to as political regimes. It's a term we usually reserve for the specific regimes of dictators, especially when they're catastrophic like Stalin's or Mao's. A democratic political regime takes this general idea of a regime, removes the dictator, and replaces it with something like public mood in the sweeping directions of public policy. So a dictator's regime 
can be understood as dependent on his mood and his often wayward policy decisions, while a democratic political regime is similar except that it's the public mood and trends in various sorts of policies that define it instead of one guy like Stalin, one family like the Kims in North Korea, or one party like we see in the CCP. So apparently the United States, according to historians, has had six major political regimes. And while I know that I might lose my kind, kind of lose my non-American listeners here in some very American weeds, bear with me because I don't think the problem I'm describing is limited to the U.S. of A. Um, these regimes have a few traits in common. First, they obviously have some policy direction that kind of defines them. It's kind of like above politics, though. Um, they're usually ushered in with a prototypical presidential administration that's very inspiring in some way and sets the tone for that kind of meta-policy. Um, the presidents who tend to initiate democratic regimes are often remembered as the greats, which should let you guess maybe which ones they are in advance of me telling you. They usually spin out their ideological and practical usefulness and applicability eventually falls off and falters and then falls, so political regimes don't last forever. And the presidents who end a democratic political regime are often remembered as having been pretty monumental failures, even if they're of excellent character, which also might help your guessing somewhat as to where these are bounded throughout American history. So another trait you need to understand is that the mood of a democratic political regime dictates how everyone governs within it. So to speak in language we understand today, if that regime is generally conservative, everyone, even the left liberal administrations, have to govern like the young within that yin. They have to be very center-left or even modestly center-right. The same is true in reverse. So if a generally very liberal or progressive regime is in place, even the conservative administrations have to adopt very left-leaning mores in their governance. They basically have no hope of being elected, or especially re-elected, or effective, or popular if they don't. So they have to go along with that broad-sweeping public mood and kind of like meta-policy direction. So democratic political regimes are like sort of supra-political. They're bigger than politics, even really big politics. Um, I generally tend to think that they are kind of reactions to the failures of the previous regimes as technology and other conditions progress in ways that demand new approaches. Um, and that means that none of the ones that have happened so far is inherently bad. They're just, they just become bad. They go bad eventually. Um, they're generally good in as much as necessity and vision start them often successfully solving problems that the earlier regime couldn't handle, and then they all crap out eventually. So that's kind of like big picture, you know, uh, abstract stuff. To get a little more specific, um, the six American political regimes so far have been these, the Federalist regime, which was just George Washington and John Adams, the founding and constitutional regime of the American Republic, the Democratic-Republican regime, which was ushered in by Thomas Jefferson and lasted through John Quincy Adams. It was largely a libertarian regime in kind of the classical liberal sense. It was a classical liberal regime. The democratic regime replaced it, uh, came in with Andrew Jackson and lasted through James Buchanan. 
Um, it was mostly a pseudo-populist regime characterized by a string of petty and pretty shockingly bad presidents on average. Um, it also led to this, up to the Civil War, um, which is when the Republican regime began with Abraham Lincoln, uh, the party of Lincoln. That's why it's called that. And it lasted um, up until Franklin Roosevelt took the presidency. It was largely actually neither liberal nor conservative, but um, nation building would have been the Republican regime. And I think it's the longest lasting in American history. So just pause for a second on that. Um, you'll notice that terms like conservative and liberal in the sense that we understand them today in American, poli American politics don't really neatly apply up to this point, but that's about to change with the new era. Franklin Roosevelt brought in the New Deal era, the New Deal regime, and it lasted through Jimmy Carter. It was a starkly progressive liberal regime that even called itself the Great Society, and eventually it's stumbled into stagflation as it, things stopped working so well for whatever problems it solved. It started to generate new ones as the world wore on and was replaced by a totally new approach called the neoconservative regime, which Ronald Reagan ushered in. And it lasted through, um, that's a tough question. Certainly George W. Bush was in the neoconservative regime but maybe so was Barack Obama. It's a little ambiguous and it gets a little bit murky here. And that was actually the topic of my January, 2017 essay that I now fear missed the main point. So it's not at all controversial, of course, to believe that Reagan started the neoconservative regime, but it is confusing, at least for me, as to whether the last neocon president was W. Bush or Obama. In 2017, I argued that it should have been had history gone the right way, whatever that means, either John McCain or Hillary Clinton. And then we could have moved on from neoconservatism properly with a dead regime. Uh, and probably it would have saw um, Barack Obama ushering in a progressive regime in 2012, whether for good or bad, I don't know. But that's not how history ended up happening. Obama beat Clinton in the 2008 Democratic primary, ran on a platform that looked like the start of a next new big thing after neoconservatism, a progressive era, got hampered by a bizarre series of congresses that weren't having it, and that forced him to govern in a way that was more neocon than he might have done otherwise. And so things got confusing. What's hard to do is think outside of that picture now. So I figured in 2017 that the next era must either be left-ish or right-ish. And, and unless we got some kind of a grip on ourselves, um, given the polarization, it would probably be extremely one or the other. So I concluded my 2017 essay suggesting that Trump's election was an aberration from the steady march of democratic political regimes in America, one to another, and that it left an open question. It remains to be seen whether the next regime will be fundamentally progressive or one more in line with the neoliberalism of the conservative movement, or maybe something even more pseudo-populist and apparently reactionary like what we tend to call Trumpism. Being on the left myself, I saw the rightful inheritor, as I already confessed, of the new political regime throne to be a progressive era, 
hopefully not one mired in critical social justice nonsense. It turns out progressive means more than just them. They've stolen that from us too. And I saw it as having been deposed by a bad bounce of history, Obama beating Clinton in the 20, I'm sorry, in the 2008 Democratic primary. Uh, Right-wing pseudo-populism had won the day, and I expressed at the time a concern that maybe Trump was ushering in an era of American history for which Andrew fucking Jackson would be the nearest similar model. But I couldn't be sure because, man, (laughs) is Trump and his approach ever unpopular outside of the group of people who genuinely support him? Remember, it's public, broad public mood, and America's fractured, so which one is it? You know, maybe maybe it is an aberration. But looking back now, after my rather panicked friend said he doesn't know how to tell what's true anymore, yeah, I feel the same way. And adding on three and a quarter more years of data and learning, I think I missed something both obvious and horrifying. So... I don't know if we're really in a weird liminal stage where neoconservatism has clearly died, but without a proper regime-ending presidency, um, although Obama's tenure may be remembered this way, rather unfortunately in my view, I think we might actually have entered the next great, I hesitate to use the word, political regime though, and I'm afraid it might be the postmodern regime, and Trump is its first and defining president. And I don't think I was intellectually equipped to think this back in 2017. And frankly, I don't think I'm emotionally equipped to think it now, but here I am thinking it anyway. So because the New Deal regime and the neoconservative regime were so blatantly left then right in their overall orientation, it's really hard to think outside of that, but you have to do this to understand what's going on. Earlier regimes before the New Deal regime were not clearly set up left or right as we understand them today. Jefferson was neither left nor right by today's standards. He was a classical liberal, a kind of a turbo libertarian, in fact, who sold off the Navy to pay down the national debt before having to build a new Navy when Napoleon started his wars in Europe. Um, So it would be plainly incorrect to characterize Lincoln's slavery ending republicanism as conservative. Also, seeing as it ended slavery and was therefore quite progressive, except in its aim to conserve and build the nation itself. So we don't have to think in this left-right paradigm, right, with political regimes. We get confused because it's really easy to think of the relatively liberal Eisenhower Republicans or even Nixon with his big regulatory agencies. Um, Those all operated in a very liberal New Deal regime. It's very easy to think of relatively conservative neocon Democrats like Bill Clinton and apparently Barack Obama, whose left bases more or less hate them and paint them up as secret conservatives. If you didn't know why that happened, by the way, this is probably it. So like I said, this means, especially in this deeply polarized environment that we're in now, that it's very hard to think of what the next regime or maybe the new current one looks like. It may not be characterizable as left side or right side, which is hard for us. I think we may have to accept that, though, and the proper characterization of the new regime is possibly neither left nor right, but both. It's the polarization and partisanship of 
everything. That's its fundamental character, driven by an underlying ethos of postmodernism in which everything is narrative, and each side, however many sides there might be, has its own truths, its own facts, its own realities, all of which only make sense within their own narratives. If so, Trumpism can't be understood as some potentially horrifying Trump doctrine, but has to be understood in a much more general absence of any such thing, being able to exist or remain stable at all. The only thing that will remain stable in a Trumpian postmodern political regime is the relentless project to deconstruct what our government and society mean at all, in pursuit of some ideal democracy, of course, which is a concept lifted straight out of critical theory and the later complaints of the postmodern theorists. So this urge to deconstruct may well be the chief characteristic of the new political regime in which we find ourselves, that in living only in narratives. A prevailing mood of tearing apart the establishment and calling what's true, whatever is most comforting, not to one's person, but rather to one's politics. That might be where we are now. This is, frankly, almost too horrifying to contemplate, as we already have some sense of what it looks like. Again, it won't necessarily look right or left. It won't look like Trump in the sense of what he's actually doing uh, in the normal political sense. It will sometimes be left. It will sometimes be right. It will always be postmodern. So when it's left, it will look like AOC, the squad, the Justice Democrats and the critical social justice warriors. When it inevitably swings back to the right rapidly and unpredictably, maybe most frequently just from one fruitless administration to the next, each taking the primary project of deconstructing its predecessor, it'll look like Trump, or more accurately like the trolls on 4chan that he whips into a frenzy. The only constant in a postmodern political regime will be that narrative is truth, and that nothing else matters. So it looks like post-modernity. It looks like a perpetual raging culture war. It looks like I don't know how to tell what's true anymore. So post-modernity, I think, is establishing itself as the dominant mood of the advanced world, especially the English-speaking world, and it's implementing itself at just about every level. Meanwhile, the overwhelming majority of the intellectually elite, all except those who are pushing it, are all busy congratulating themselves on how smart they are for having never really taken it seriously. Postmodernism is dead, don't you know? The philosophers have been saying so for ages. That's not good. But that's where we are right now, I think. We are already there. And at least some people love it. So I talk to a lot of people who support Trump, and I ask them what they like about him. Uh, some of them are just disconnected from reality entirely and talk about features of some deity they've conjured up out of thin air, kind of like a pyrite idol with a big T Trump written on it. Others are really happy, actually, about how he stands up to the social justice bullies, even if they don't like a lot of other things about him. Um, maybe they like his conservative politics, too if that's what we call them. So what they like is that he hates their political enemies and seems to be able to defeat them. But you have to look at the playing field that he plays on. 
How does he do it? And that's where others are more clarifying in their explanations. They tell me, I like him because he makes everyone's head spin. And I still remember the first time somebody said that to me. I just kind of stared and blinked. I didn't know what to do. You like the man because he makes everyone's head spin. And of course, the everyone here means everyone who hasn't adopted the very postmodern attitude that nothing really matters. Everything needs to be de deconstructed. And it's all just narrative and images and applications of political nonsense. So it's not even that Trump upsets people that they like. It's that he upsets them in a particular way that can only properly be described as deconstruction, like Jack Derrida deconstruction. And he occupies his own locations of alternative facts, his own narrative machine that authenticates what is and isn't true, like the birth certificate thing and everything that comes up against him being a hoax. You can just go on down. And so that's to say that Michel Foucault's presence is definitely felt too. And those narratives all thrive in their own narrative ecosystem, a Leotardian local narrative ecosystem where they're true inside and don't make any sense outside. And that, of course, is the kind of thing that Richard Rorty described when he said the world is out there, but the facts are in here and impervious to it. So my point here isn't to try to justify to you why I don't particularly like Trump as a president. Um, it's not even to explain why I haven't been able to stop calling him the first postmodern president almost since the day he was elected. My point is that he is the first postmodern president in the sense that he is the first president who has truly embraced and made use of and established and maybe normalized the age of narratives or narrativism, which is the proper successor and fruit of postmodernism. My point is that we really do live in postmodernity now, and Trump's presidency is kind of the proof. And I don't think we have done until quite recently. I think the ship really did only just leave port, maybe in the last five years. So this leaves a final question to mull over, and a place to start winding this down. And it, it isn't what a postmodern political regime looks like that will look like left and right administrations bouncing back and forth and tearing each other apart while we live in a raging culture where, where nothing makes sense and nobody knows how to tell what's true. It's not even to try to explain what will happen in one, which is I don't think a functioning society lasts very long in one. Uh, in fact, I think it's likely that um, it, a postmodern political regime and a democracy will be catastrophic if it lasts very long. Not only because of the fact that it will continually tear itself apart from the inside, postmodernism tends to deconstruct itself as much as anything else, but because of the fact that it will render itself mostly useless while our global political competitors will not. Uh, I guarantee you that... Um, other nations who wish to compete with or supplant the United States as a superpower are are not, you know, rethinking math or believing that everything's narrative and alternative facts. So um, that raises the question. If I'm right that the postmodern political regime is here, it's how long will it last? When will this madness stop? When will we have a chance to know how to know what's true again? And the answer is, I don't know. Neoconservatism lasted for 40 years after brewing for a little over a decade, maybe two before that. 
the New Deal and the Republican regimes were longer, their roots might have been deeper. I'm not a sufficient student of history to know. Federal Federalist regime lasted only through two administrations, but it you know fomented for a little while before we overthrew the previous regime, which was uh, British colonial rule. But nonetheless, Federalist regime was only 12 years long, so they can be long or they can be short. So the postmodern regime, if that's what this is, has been brewing for about 35 years properly, I think, and in philosophical soil, maybe 20 years deeper. Uh, but postmodernism itself is inherently unstable and almost guaranteed not just to be at odds with reality, which it denies as a matter of principle, but to have absolutely no tether to reality by which it can put itself on any kind of solid track and stay there. Reality to postmodernism is the thing that's out there, but that we can't get to. Because knowledge and truth in postmodernism are just things that live inside narratives, and narratives are features of politics, and politics aren't even in the business of describing reality. There's another thing, except for the kind of trollish characters who like it um, for what amount to bad reasons or being postmodernists themselves in degrees that they don't want to admit, um, postmodernity is absolutely intolerable psychologically to pretty much everyone else. The, the very wide majority of people find it psychologically intolerable to not be able to know how to know what is true. It's, it's fundamentally exhausting to live this way. Everything, I mean, everything having to be political is even worse than exhausting. It corrodes the soul and the very will to live. You know, you can't even have your, your snacks, your football game, your entertainment, your food, your nothing. Can't Everything has to be politics. It's just exhausting. So because it's so unpleasant as a public mood, kind of a teenager's revolt. It's very difficult to conceive of it lasting very long as a democratic political regime. Uh, furthermore, you know, right now Trump is getting his first really big test against reality. You know, maybe not his first one. I don't know. It depends on how you count the other hurricanes that have come. But he's got the, the COVID-19 pandemic to deal with right now. And maybe he'll get lucky and he might not with this. Whether, um, his administration, though, lasts just four or a total of eight years. It's entirely possible that he will end up being the first and last postmodern president. So that's kind of a possibility here. Uh, one president regime. It seems very Trumpian, actually. Uh, although it's also entirely possible that his administration is going to um, come through this pretty well and set the stage for an utterly schizophrenic political era that will last, if I have any best to place, roughly as long as the Republic does, at least as any kind of solidly established first world nation. Um, the USA will still exist, but maybe as something more like Russia, broken, utterly, and corrupt. That's, to, to my best guess, a very likely outcome of a postmodern political regime that lasts more than even a couple of administrations. And so that's where we are. And this is the most pessimistic I think I've ever been in any public-facing statement I've ever made. It might be the most pessimistic I've ever been at all, in fact. Uh, I have to admit that I am not happy or comfortable with this observation that we might actually be in neither left nor right, but this polarizing postmodern both. Luckily, the relentless optimism in me that a former girlfriend once mocked isn't dead 
either, and neither is modernity, which is pretty big and stable and lurches on with a lot of inbuilt uh, momentum, even as postmodernity makes its bid on the advanced democratic world. Uh, like I said, the postmodernity ship has only just left port, I think, and it's really not too late to stop ourselves from uh, stopping it. <laughs> Whatever you think of Trump as a president, it's possible to hate the postmodern political regime that his administration almost undoubtedly represents on principle. And it's certainly possible to start to reject that postmodernist narrative, narrativist, I should say, hot-taking, trolling impulse that gives it weight and really its only chance to survive and thrive. It's possible to start holding our narrative-generating processes to better standards and to norms that aren't fundamentally skeptical of all meta-narratives and science and truth, uh, so that they can push some political agenda or another. It is actually possible to stop thinking of everything as politically relevant or politically important and step back from this ledge. So I don't know how to tell what's true anymore is the anthem of our age. And that age has a name, I think. It is postmodernity, and we are here. So it's also the problem we have been set by history to solve, if we care to solve it. It's the statement of a problem, whose negation is its own answer. That is, the solution to postmodernity, which is a problem that could genuinely end our civilizations, is utterly straightforward. It's to figure out how to tell what's true again, even living with social media, even with cable news, even with, as I've also taken to calling it the warring narratives period that we live in that blares all around us and makes it impossible to know what's true. That's our challenge. We have to figure out how to tell what's true again, and we have to hold our experts and institutions to standards that enable it. And we can do it. We figured out how to tell what's true once at least once in human history, during the Enlightenment, which ended the pre-modern dark age of superstition that preceded it, and we can figure out how to do it again, hopefully soon enough to stop postmodernism from turning out the lights on us all again. So I think this is our project right now, and we've all got some work to do. In the meantime, welcome to postmodernity. I won't ask you to enjoy your stay.